you one two uh, how is this coming across? It sounds great. Sounds great. I did remember to turn the um, reverb off, unless you want God to speak. <laughs> That's good. We need that. It's not God. It's John McCutcheon. And this is The Growing Edge. To the words and habit between us, and to us and how we live between the Well, today uh, we have John McCutcheon as our guest, and I am so delighted to have him on the program. Uh, just a little information about John. Uh, he's a musician, an activist, a spiritual seeker. He is the master of the Hammered Dulcimer and a songwriter's songwriter. He has 41 albums to his credit. He's received six Grammy Award nominations. He's worked for 40 years bringing together intelligent, thoughtful songs fearless commentary, and continued work for all kinds of social justice efforts, all with his signature wry sense of humor and the gift of telling a darn good story. I'm just so delighted that you're here. Welcome, John. Thanks. This has been something that uh, when you were brave enough to write me the email inviting me to do this, I thought, I can't think of any two people I would rather sit in the room with, with the possible exception of you know, Gandhi and Mozart. Wow. I, I well, feel way up there now. <laughs> if, if that happens, please invite us. But I've, I've been listening. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've been listening to your music for 50 years, John, and, and that's where I want to start with a question for you. You have, in fact, been out there for half a century as a singer-songwriter, swimming in the very complex waters of American culture, American politics, spirituality as it has developed over the years, social change. You're a voice in music familiar to so many of us who've been swimming those same waters. And what I'd love to start with is an overview from you, if, if possible, about some of the major ways in which those waters have changed as time has gone by. 50 years ago, politics in the U.S. I think looked a little different than they do today but uh, probably some real continuities as well. So what comes to you when you look back over this uh, really remarkable run you've had that's still going strong? Well, I hadn't ever thought of it in quite those aquatic terms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it actually started more than 50 years ago. Uh, I was growing up in north central Wisconsin, north of where you are, Parker. And I was an 11 year old kid and I ch had achieved my life's dream. I was the starting catcher for our town's little league all-star team. <laughs> it's all been kind of downhill since then. <laughs> uh, and it was an August afternoon and there was practice for the all-star team. And we lived outside of town and, um, you know, it, there's sort of this myth that every kid in Wisconsin at age 11 knows how to drive, um, whether it be a tractor or a pickup truck. Um, and we have, uh, but most of us were not showing up at Little League practice in the old Massey Ferguson. Uh, for that, I needed my mom and I couldn't find her. And I searched our little house from top to bottom and finally found her watching television, which was a most unlikely pose. 
And she said, after I did my, you know, I was in a state of high fuss, as my grandmother used to say. <laughs> she invited me to sit down and watch television with her. It was the only time in her life she had ever done that. And I was intrigued. And what she was watching was the March on Washington. Oh. And um, neither of us had any, nobody had any idea of the, of the historical import of that day while we were watching it. But it was a remarkable thing. Uh, here was a social movement, the social movement of the time um, that everybody knew about. It was on the news every night. Uh, my mother was a social worker before she became a mom. And uh, so she was, you know, she had her ear kind of tuned to the world. And here was a social movement that was led by clergy that used biblical language that was obviously to this 11-year-old Catholic kid, uh, a righteous movement. And, and to top it all off, the songs were all repurposed hymns. Hmm. So it, it was, a you know, I've often said that my politics was guided by my faith. That's how I was introduced to all this. It wasn't, I didn't have a Marxist professor in college. It was, and even today, when I look at anything from immigration to um, war, it's guided by what I continue to be taught mm -hmm. by my faith. And that is, so that, and synchronicitously, if that's a word, um, that was the day I discovered folk music. Hmm. And now, a group of singers who have come to help express and song what this great meeting is all about. I give you now Peter, Paul, and Mary. There was Joan Baez and Odetta and Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they were singing these songs that were obviously new but sounded old. And, and there was also Marian Anderson and Mahalia Jackson. It, was, it wasn't just folk music. Um, the real moment for me was when Peter, Paul, and Mary sang If I Had a Hammer. And I'd heard that song. And what was really moving to me, two things, was that as the cameras panned the crowd, everybody was singing. Young and old and black and white and the people on the dais who never sang, they were singing. Uh, and it was a really powerful moment, made even more powerful by the fact that I realized that my mother was singing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, who are you? <laughs> you, have, you, you have babies, you clean houses. How do you know about this stuff? Um, and my best friend was watching at the same time and we did everything together. We talked about what we saw. We talked about the music, we got guitars. And so from the very beginning, all this was art in service of a community. Uh, it was art that made people join in. It was participatory. It was diverse. Uh, I mean, I'd never, American Bandstand didn't even have black and white acts on at the same time in 1963. So this was really an amazing thing. Plus, Bob Dylan was there. I heard him and I thought, I can be a professional singer. <laughs> <laughs> All you need is a growl. <laughs> and this is really true. When they, when Peter, Paul, and Mary, the first song they sang was Blowing in the Wind, I swear I thought the chorus was the ants are my friends. 
And I looked at my mom, the aunts and my friends, and I just, I remember thinking, I gotta learn about this folk music, because there's something I don't understand, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Were you playing an instrument at the time, John? And how soon did oh, you Oh, heavens. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was 11 at the time, and almost three years later to the date, I got my first guitar. Uh, so no, I wasn't, I was an indentured servant to my piano teacher for a while, but that was, you know, that was more like schoolwork. You know, it was, it was the old way of teaching music. You know, you have to learn how to read this sheet of paper and only then can you put your hands to the keys. Today, you know, the Suzuki method is exactly the opposite. It's how people yeah. learn language. They speak it and then they say, oh, by the way, here's the written part, interpretation. Yeah. So, yeah. but, and with the guitar, it was just, my mom at one point said, gosh, you sure practice a lot. I thought, I'm not practicing. What's she talking about? <laughs> I'm just playing all the time. You're playing. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a great story. I mean, and from the very beginning then, I mean, this idea of music being, um, music and art but it's also in service to something you know that that went completely hand in hand with you and that it moved you somehow yeah my first gig my first gig i'd been playing for two weeks <laughs> and a neighbor it's true and i thought boy this music business is easy <laughs> a neighbor of ours like just about every male I knew except my dad worked in one of the five local paper mills mm -hmm. and uh, he apparently was in charge of getting the arranging the entertainment for their union's Labor Day picnic and he heard me singing from my house because I was a very enthusiastic learner <laughs> and he came over and he offered me $25 to come and play for their union's Labor Day picnic, and I'd been playing for two weeks. I knew like three songs. He said, that's fine. Just sing those three songs over and over because nobody's going to be listening to you anyway, which was, you know, my second lesson about the music business. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, you got to play this song. And he gave me the words of solidarity forever. Yeah. And I said, I've never heard this song. He said, it's to the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, just play that. And so I sang my, you know, I showed up in my little Kmart polyester shirt with my clip-on tie and sat off to the side and played my three pathetic little songs. And when it was time, I started singing this song and all these guys who I knew, they were brothers and uncles and fathers of my classmates. They just stopped and they took one another's hands and they stood up and they raised their arms and they started singing and I knew these guys they didn't need to sing in church but yeah. they sang like their lives depended on it and and that was a moment my first gig when I thought music does something to people it lets us talk about ourselves in ways we don't allow ourselves to speak um, I want to discover this um, I want to find out what this is about um, so every everywhere I turned, it was, you know, the first album I ever bought was a Pete Seeger album. Mm -hmm. And it was a live concert. And it was like, I'd never been to a concert. I said, I want to do that. 
Uh, I want to be in that audience. I want I want to feel that humanity around me. And then later on, it was like, I, that's what I want my concerts to be like when I was in charge of a concert. Yeah. That, that's what I want my music to do. <laughs> it was inevitable. But this is, uh, like I said, it, uh, <laughs> again, this image of all those, all those uncles and fathers and brothers and, um, you know, all, all these men holding hands and raising them up and singing that song with you at your first gig. You know, that is just, that is, I'm, I'm sorry. My first gig was in a border bar in, in, you know, up, you know, lower Michigan. You know, I lied about my age. <laughs> I mean, it's like, was not quite the same thing. Um, uh, well, but understand, of- I was ignored for most of that <laughs> gig. <laughs> you know, I was incidental. So maybe it wasn't that different. <laughs> well, uh, but I love, I just love that story. Um, I'm always touched, you know, so many of your songs. You know, there's always this uh, incredible human element, this insight into human nature. And sometimes there are these songs that are telling the story of these unique moments in human history, Um, whether it's large and historic or it's the shawl dance. Or it's the cellist in Sar- mm. Sarajevo. Um, you you tell these stories about when human beings rise to something, and in showing that, showing that we we aren't completely separate, that we are human, that there are these threads that go between us, and this idea of dignity and respect for one another. Um, I'd love to play a little bit of a song right now uh, of yours called "The Other," and. Mm. Uh, this song, uh, again, there's just some some beautiful, beautiful lines in this song. Like I said, you are a songwriter's songwriter. You know, you're, well, you're a songwriter for everybody, but as another songwriter, it's a, you know, your uh, your songs are just so exceptional. So, uh, I'd like to play the, a bit of this song and then come back and we'll talk a little more about it. I am the other I am the neighbor you don't know The quiet kid in high school Who sat in the last row The woman with the push cart Stranger on the bus The ones out at the edges Who were never one of us I am the other I root for the other team I pray in a different language Where clothes you've never seen I tune to different stations On TV and radio I hear things you never hear I know things you'll never know I am the other Returning home from work at dawn I'm the guy who drives a Prius with a Trump sign on my lawn. I'm the one who sees the world a little different than you. Still I'll come if you're in trouble. I mean, what you gonna do? I am the other, waiting patiently in line, 
watching others cut in front of me who think that it's just fine I am detained at the border I am stopped by the police and I'm wondering when all this special treatment's gonna cease I am the other Every day just getting by I'm the one who got in harbor and never wondered why I am Brooklyn in Topeka, Harlan in LA. I am seventh generation. I have just arrived today. I am the other. I am no great mystery if wonder is the watchword and compassion is the key. When we sit down at the banquet, this well no longer dry We'll bow our heads in thanks And eat our humble pie I am the other I am the other, I am no great mystery Wonder is the watchword. Compassion is the key. And when we sit down at the banquet, this well no longer dry, we bow our heads in thanks and eat our humble pie. <laughs> what a beautiful song, that moment, at that, that last line where you put your finger on the open palm of something so true. Thank you for, for writing that song. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, coming from you, that's the highest praise. Um, and I, this is a song I, I wanted to write as a, I don't exactly know what to call it, as an elder mm. for so much of our own community that, you know, ha takes a good idea and immediately runs to the edges with it and doesn't see the log in your own eye complaining about the splinter in the other. Yeah. Uh, othering is something everybody does. Um, and one of the first times I ever sang this song, somebody says, I don't like this song. I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't get it. Why are you, you know, you're just supposed to be talking about us. <laughs> and I thought <laughs> this is a song that really needed to get written. <laughs> Apparently, you know, I've, as I've gotten older, I've, tend to be less afraid to confound because mm. I become more suspicious of certainty. Yeah. I, I started a little bit late having children. So I was in my forties by the time my kids were teenagers and uh, in my late forties. And by the time my two sons were ready to tell me how stupid I was, I was ready to say, yeah, I am. I am so ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> and it really pissed them off. <laughs> Because they wanted to fight. It's their job. Yeah, <laughs> they, the they, they came to a fight with an unarmed man. <laughs> <laughs> the secret of nonviolence, John, right there in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this, this, this seems to be a, th a thread that's pulled through. You write about all kinds of things, and I, I love that as well, that you, you're, you're, you know, no topic is off you know off limits for for you um but there are threads that kind of pull through um 
um, ideas and thoughts that you seem to return to again and again. And this idea of, of seeing, you know, really seeing the human condition, of describing it in ways that it's not them, it's us. Am I getting that right? I, I think so. As a songwriter, you know that um, we traffic in revelation. And we don't always know. Parker, in one of your books, you had a, and I think I told you this, you had a wonderful description of writing as a conversation between the paper and the pen. Hmm. Um, But the notion that you're, I feel led in much of my writing. Back in the early 2000s, um, when George W. Bush was the president, and, and well, mainly what, what happened was September 11th, of course, and every writer I knew was either completely immobilized or were writing more than they'd ever written. And I was of the latter category. And one of the things I've often used is humor. And I decided to, you know, there was a lot of low hanging fruit for political satire in the yeah. Bush administration. And it was easy. It was fun. Um, and after about five or six years of sort of focusing on that, I realized that the polarization that was happening, which I decried so much, I was doing my part and hmm. decided I was going to leave that low-hanging fruit to people who needed low-hanging fruit as their writing subjects and thought, I'm into doing stuff that scares me now. Wow. Stuff I'm not sure of. And yeah. One of the things I wanted to do was was create a conversation or continue a conversation and not just have something that people were looking for, ready to have their buttons pushed, either mm. for or against. I was at a storytelling festival once and some older gentleman stood up and said, sir, I don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, here I am in a, in a position of incredible power. I've got 3,000 people who love me. I have a microphone. I could squash this guy like a bug. Yeah. And I thought that would be the worst thing a human being could do at that moment. Yeah. Um, And instead I engaged him and took him to lunch afterwards. And he was a lovely guy. And I had said something that he theologically disagreed with. Um, and I think with finding that place where no one feels marginalized is, a is what I'm kind of been looking for. And I find creating a story and finding a voice, um, even in the hard stuff, like, um, the, the song, the machine, which, Mm -hmm. which is about the Charlottesville. Uh, yeah. incident. And I lived in Charlottesville for 20 years, raised my children there. I had to write about it. Mm-hmm. But being able to find a voice of of who, who is who is telling this story and having a World War II veteran tell that story um, was, I decided, was the way to go. Because you're not going to argue with that guy. Yeah. It's so interesting, John, that when I when I heard you you tell the story of that fateful day in the mid-60s when you're 11 years old and and you're, you see your mother uh, and your grandmother, I guess, in the living room watching that march on Washington. 
um, and the whole new world began to open for you, um, I got to thinking about the March on Washington and thinking about the fact that really not a lot has changed to this day in those troubled waters that I was talking about, that I was asking you about early on. Mm. But if we're, if we're present, if we pay attention the way you obviously have, we change um, our, our view of the, the world and how we want to respond to it changes. And I think you've just given us a beautiful example of that sort of sea change. I seem to be hooked on aquatic metaphors today, but that sea change in your own life, where instead of getting out there in a pugilistic way, you, you get out there in a more compassionate, dialogical way, wanting to understand and you know, wanting to make a positive contribution to othering, which may upset some people because they don't understand it, but I think is going to speak to a lot of people because in a song like The Other, um, almost everyone can find a way in which they have been othered, or, or so it strikes me. There, there's a huge cast of characters in that song. The, the question I would like to ask you has to do with radical othering, because if there is a difference between the mid-60s and today, I think we've recently seen an example of how there are extremes of othering and the mythologizing of the other that can lead to violence, uh, very direct violence, can lead to insurrection, um, can lead to things that a lot of Americans have traditionally thought just happened in other countries whose names we can hardly pronounce not here in the city that God set up on a hill. But now they have, and we're having to reckon with a whole new reality. So thinking for a moment about these extremes of polarization and the violence that, that comes with that kind of polarization, which has been building, I think, since the mid-60s through a whole lot of complicated human history, I want to take us for a moment, ask you to take us for a moment, to one of the songs for which you're best known, and that's Christmas in, in the Trenches. Um, this amazing moment, uh, as I recall, in 1914, uh, around Christmas time, mm -hmm. where German and British troops declared a truce, got out of the trenches, and stopped shooting each other and started singing with each other, celebrating Christmas with each other, you obviously entered that moment very deeply in your own imagination and uh, have delivered that message so powerfully to so many people for so long that it is possible to have these moments of breakthrough where what looks like irreconcilable difference becomes, for to use a phrase from Carrie's, one of Carrie's songs, one shining moment, it becomes uh, a vision of of the beloved community. Uh, tragically, the next morning, those troops go back to shooting at each other and killing each other. And you name that in that song, too. Um, I just would love to hear you talk about that moment in World War I and whether you have continued to see moments like that in American polarization and othering and whether you see opportunities for moments like that today 
knowing that you're someone who enters these situations wanting to help lay the ground for such moments to happen. I think it was an early example of looking to historical events that can resonate with us, hopefully, today. The historical reality of what happened, um, and many people believe this is a myth, but there's a wonderful book called Silent Night by Stanley Weintraub, that this this really did happen. Um, and it was much more widespread than the sort of image you have in your head of 20 or 30 guys playing soccer out in the no man's land. I mean, the trenches went on for nearly 500 miles and there were, by Weintraub's estimates, nearly 300,000 men who participated in this because you, you just couldn't neglect the fact that 100 yards down there, something was going on. And it was music that instigated all this. There was singing back and forth, and finally they they hit on the Stille Nacht, Silent Night, which was originally written in German. Mm -hmm. And they both started singing it together. And how could a normal human being not stop for a moment and say, well, how about that? We're singing the same thing in our respective languages, and it's about a season of peace. And then a very brave young man had to get out and venture out there into no man's land. It was, a, it was an incredible act of courage. And then everybody had to shed the entire world of their training. You have to feed people this anonymity. You have to create cultural stereotypes. There was a, a, a film inspired by this event called Jouis Noël. And the beginning of the film has our flashes of children from different countries talking about children in other countries. Well, you know what the Germans are like. You know what the French are like. You know what the English are like. And you just think these are children saying this. And, and how we are, we have to be taught that. We have to dehumanize, depersonalize that person so we can obey the order that someone else said go kill that person mm -hmm. uh, it's you know there's that old bumper sticker that quakers frequently have on their car war is not the answer and if it was the answer it would have been solved a long time ago mm -hmm. um we yeah. keep asking the same questions with the same results so 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 one takeaway from that story for me, John, thank you for reminding me of that young man who took a very brave act. And what he did, as I recollect, correct me if I'm wrong, but he went out there with a white flag of truce, of, of peace, did he not? And he marched yes, between... And, and a small Christmas tree. And a small Christmas tree. Okay, so his yeah. hands are full of these like symbols, these peace offerings. Right. And he starts walking between these lines that just uh, an hour earlier had been blowing each other to kingdom come. And suddenly everybody stops and says, whoa, there's a possibility here. I mean, it, re it just reminds me of famous moments in history. Um, I think quickly of Jesus and the hungry crowd of 5,000 people who somehow he manages to satisfy them with a few loaves and fishes in the way the story is told. 
Um, and and it again raises the question for me of how can we be that person who in front of 3,000 people doesn't squash that guy like a bug but actually invites him into a dialogue, a conversation and makes a deep bow to his, um, to his humanity really. It, 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 you think that's a good takeaway for, for us? Well, I think, I th yeah, I think looking at the, the person who, who chose to take the risk, um, having no idea what the outcome would be, um, it's interesting you should bring up the loaves and the fishes because it's actually my favorite miracle. <laughs> it's, it, you can correct me if I'm wrong because you're both better theologians than I am. Uh, I believe it's the only miracle that involves a child. And this child responds to this call and she's got two loaves and uh, five loaves and two fishes. And, um, and said, here, take everything I have. Mm -hmm. This is enough to share. Um, so there's always another facet in that jewel that we, but the notion of, of, refusing to to other the other person um yeah i i frequently go to that in my songs there's an example here in georgia a little town called fitzgerald southern part of the state that was established by an indiana newspaper publisher named fitzgerald as a retirement community for union civil war veterans who were who it, they just wanted to go it was like they wanted to go to Florida. They wanted to go to Arizona, except that didn't happen then. So he bought this piece of property and he put up, you know, these ads, you want to come and a bunch of Confederate veterans showed up too. Hmm. And during their th big first Thanksgiving parade, there was all this hubbub. Who's going to, you know, who's going to go up first, the union guys or the Confederate guys. And while the city fathers were arguing about this, the soldiers themselves just came out of their holding pen in this big barn, all mixed up in no order at all. And, you know, Carrie, you referenced a couple of other historical events that I've, you know, whether it be the cellist of Sarajevo or the MS St. Louis or any of these things that nobody remembers anymore. I think they're worth remembering and that's... Mm -hmm they tend to matter to me and hopefully to some other people. Yeah. Well, and there's a sense of possibility because as Parker was saying, there was one, there was one fellow who went out into mm -hmm. no man's land with a little, I think of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, you know, what must he have had in a, in a trench, you know, Fox, you know, some sprig of something, you know, went out there um, with both sides with, you know, with guns, you know, and, and did that. And, you know, these ideas of possibility, uh, that was a moment for him. And he, he, he chose a certain kind of showing up and, uh, and to present something about humanity and that we have that same possibility. You know, that's these historical events that you write about give us some kind of possibility that there's a chance for that right now, today. It can happen in my life. You know, it can happen 
Um, and it does. You know, we, we, we encounter things all the time where we have to make a decision. You know, yeah. I think, Carrie, it's the choice to be vulnerable as I think about these stories. I mean, that guy between those warring lines made himself very vulnerable. Jesus, in front of a hungry crowd of 5,000 with this pittance of food, made himself very vulnerable. And I know we, we're all interested in that question of how do we make a decision to be vulnerable? Because it seems to move things along. Do you think, Carrie? Yeah, I mean, there's something about the act of our own vulnerability, showing up as our true selves, showing up uh, in such a way that someone might stand up in the crowd and say, I don't agree with you. <laughs> you know? um, and, uh, and that making a difference, that making a, a larger difference. What occurs to me is that guy was courageous too. How courageous did that yes, man have to be in the crowd of 3,000 that were cheering my every word to say, my witness is this. Yeah. And you can't not honor that. I bet he was a Quaker. I don't have to agree with it. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, no, I no, think he was a Presbyterian <laughs> repenting. <laughs> um, well, uh, we'll we'll probably play a, a little bit of the song. We, I don't think we'll play the entire song uh, because we've told so much of the story. But we'll we'll play a snippet here mm -hmm. um, because it's such a lovely song. Christmas in the trenches, um, you mean? Yeah. Yes, and then we'll be right back. Soon daylight stole upon us, and France was France once more. With sad farewells, we each began to settle back to war. But the question haunted every heart that lived that wondrous night. Whose family have I fixed within my sights? It was Christmas in the trenches where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were warmed as songs of peace were sung. For the walls they'd kept between us to exact the work of war had been crumbled and were gone forevermore. Oh, my name is Francis Tolliver, in Liverpool I dwell. Each Christmas comes since World War One. I've learned its lessons well But the ones who call the shots Won't be among the dead and lame And on each end of the rifle We're the same
John, I, I, I'm going to shift a little bit here. You know, this podcast is called The Growing Edge, and we approach The Growing Edge um, from different angles, from our personal growing edges. And we've been talking about that uh, some with your evolution as an artist and the way you approach music and the way you approach um, writing about um, the world and writing about people and human condition. Uh, we talk about vocationally and, um, uh, you know, what what is at the growing edge of what we're doing with our lives, you know, how we're showing up in the world uh, in our vocations. And then we also um, talk politically, um, as we have been today. But I'm going to go back to, to the personal for a moment. And, you know, we've been talking about all these um, uh, moments in history. We've been talking about, um, you know, this evolution. But recently, you sent Parker and I a new song, um, which I don't know if I've ever, first of all, I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with you that you didn't say, I have a new song. <laughs> I mean, this is part of how how it works. But you sent this beautiful song called Be Still. And uh, it's, it's a song um, about practice. It's about a, a different kind of uh, spiritual practice, about um, doing the inner work that informs our outer work. And that that can be a very, you know, doing the inner work is a real growing edge as well. Um, so can you talk just a little bit about, you know, the the song Be Still? And we're going to go ahead and play it at some, you know, but I'd like to just hear a little bit more from you about it. My wife, Carmen, um, who is also a writer, she's a she writes children's picture books. Um, and I have a little cabin in the North Georgia mountains that we retreat to, to do writing. And it is a really fruitful place. Um, all the songs that I sent you were written there. It's just one of those sacred places that when you, you know, if you have a room that that's what you do in there, when you walk in, you know, oh, I'm going to write in here. Um, and I often, um, if the weather is nice, I live on our front porch up there and there's a, have an old rocker. And I usually get out there and I have no predetermined subject. I just wait for the birds or the road or something to let me know what I'm going to write about that day. And I think we, Carrie, you and I had probably had a conversation. Um, and I don't have many friends during this pandemic that are fellow Quakers. Um, and we had talked something about that, but I'd also really renewed my centering prayer practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I have been reading a lot of, you know, uh, Father Keating and Richard Rohr. And, and I, um, one of the things I picked up from you early on, Parker, was that we share this book of a year with Thomas Merton, uh, which I read every morning. And in, and in fact, as a Christmas gift, uh, got all of his journals. Um, and the whole notion of how, I watch less news these days and I read more scripture. Um, because there's such a dearth of good ideas in the world <laughs> of, of the news, 
I want to, I want to get back to the place where there really were good ideas and, and chew on those because those will ultimately guide. I mean, the whole, you know, the outer world in which we traffic uh, is dominated by news that drives all our attention to the top of the political pyramid where we have no access and it just leaves you feeling pissed off and powerless. And that's, that's the oxygen of the, of the 24 hour news stations left and right. Mm -hmm. It's what keeps, you know, it's why Facebook's wants to keep you there. They just keep outraging you. So you're going to read the comments, you know, the dirty, the sordid underbelly of the internet, <laughs> the <laughs> comment sections. Uh, and, and I, I have found since I re have really renewed that practice that I respond to the world in a much more measured and empathetic way. I mean, all the great wisdom literature of this world puts a premium on compassion and, com you know, um, the, the avenue to that is empathy. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, um, you know, that's where Be Still came from. It was a reminder to me of, you know, when the, amidst the roiling of the world all around you, be still. Amidst the roiling of the world all around you, be still. When everything conspires to confound you, be still. When they feed you one more lie and you know you've had your fill, When you realize the fools will go to any length, be still. They need to find a way to gather up your strength, be still. They don't understand true power and you know they never will, be still. When you feel your heart despairing and you don't know where to turn, when you're looking for your bearing as the waves of even churn, Nothing is more daring than the willingness to learn. Be still, be still. Thomas Merton and the Buddha came before you. Be still, offering examples to explore you. Be still, emptiness to overflowing if you only will. His defense against the madness that roars on every side. Relief against the sadness that rolls on you like a tide. If you seek the gladness that's a sure and steady guide, be still, be still. If you need to rally the power of your force, be still. You first must seek the center of your source. Be still at the fringes of the fight. It might work against your will, accepting that the battle will forever be uphill. It takes belief and patience to muster all your skill. Be still.
You know, John, I just wanted to say before I lost the, the thought that Be Still, a song I love, um, r reminds me that we often other ourselves in our choices of what to consume culturally and politically. It's as if there's something in us that says, now what can I watch or read today that will make me really angry and that will make me feel like the outsider who has no leverage on these massive evil events that are happening, rather than drawing us to what's within our reach and what's within. How am I contributing to the madness? How might I reach out to somebody who's somewhere in my life, handy, close at hand, and begin to make peace on that interpersonal level as I make peace on the inward level. So I think, I think these topics that we've been exploring are very interrelated in, in some very powerful ways. And they all, I think they all have to do with choice making. That's what interests me in this conversation is that we make a choice to be vulnerable. We make a choice to, to, do, to take a risky act. We don't know what its outcome is going to be. We may look like fools, you know, who are offering not nearly enough to a massive problem. Uh, we, we, we may be othered by the folks who witness us. We may other ourselves. These are all choices. And I think it's so wonderful that you're reminding us of these choices out of your own choice making in life. And I want to lift up something too, uh, because um, like myself, you're a full-time touring musician. You have been um, a, a traveling musician for many years, and that experience of what happens in communities of people with music um, mm. is is the it's it's the water you swim in. I mean, it's the air we breathe, right? And during uh, the COVID pandemic. You know, you and I have had some interesting conversations about, uh, you know, the pandemic came and something stopped for us. That something, um, in terms of great disruption in our lives, and um, and what to do with, you know, uh, what to do with that kind of disruption. What what to do with that kind of uh, well grief. What to do with that kind of grief and. Um, and also, what risk will I take in this time period? And I've, I've been watching you take really incredible creative risk and also make these really deep commentaries about the soul work we're doing at the same time. I'm old enough that people often ask me, when are you going to retire? And I don't know what that means. I mean... <laughs> I, you know, I am shamed by Pete Seeger at age 94 with two canes showing up at Occupy Wall Street, you know, because, because he wanted to be helpful. And it's yeah. the most, any of us, no matter what our work is, whether we're a school teacher, we deliver the mail, we're carpenters or poets, we want to ultimately be helpful. And I think... When the act, the intimate act of being in a, in a theater 
with a room full of people and having everybody surrender to that moment in hopes of creating at least for a couple of hours, this sense of community. When the ways in which we had learned how to do that all our lives and learned from other people who had been doing that all their lives before us, when we couldn't do that anymore, we had to figure out how we could continue to be helpful. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was fortunate that we had one another we could say, okay, here, here's what we want to do. Ultimately, let's talk about the technical, uh, you know, road before us, so that it can be as, as intimate as possible with those people who want to be together so much, we're willing to do this. <laughs> you know? right. uh, we're willing to, you know, sing into a camera lens, and I'm willing to watch you on my phone. <laughs> It's, it, yeah. you know, we've all reached out to one another and we all have to do our part. Um, and all of us are trying to do the best we can. And what seem like risks to some people are, are just survival methods <laughs> to others. <laughs> right. It's Molly Brown. Um, but, yeah. you know, uh, but isn't it interesting, though, that uh, as we've, you know, both of us, have learned how to um, present what we're doing in the world, be helpful uh, in in new ways to, to kind of go back to beginner's mind. You know, it's like, John, you've been doing this a long time and you had to learn a whole new way of approaching something. That was... I had, know, to, put out, I had to put out my hat. Yeah. You know, there was, there was, there was busking involved starting a year ago and eventually we yeah. thought you know, this isn't sustainable. You know, if I was in your town, you'd buy a ticket. Come on, let's figure <laughs> yeah. out uh, creative ways to make this happen. But yeah, it, it, it has been humbling. Yeah. And uh, I don't mind it. As my, as my youngest son used to say, my dad is a humble man and lots of reasons for it. <laughs> 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 I got to meet your son. Uh, that was one of my dad's favorite sayings, too. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of getting old, um, if you do figure out how to retire, let me know, will you, John? Because I, <laughs> that's information I need. Um, I, sadly, we're going to have to begin to end this podcast, which I know Carrie and I really hate to do. It's just been so wonderful to no! hang out with you this way. Just, this has been, just great. been great. We'll have to do it again. Um, we want to turn to one more of your wonderful songs um, called 100 Years, uh, ah. because at the end of every podcast, we like to ask our guests, uh, having talked about growing edges of various sorts, what's on your growing edge right now? What's on John McCutcheon's growing edge right now? And I know from this wonderful song, 100 Years, which begins with 100 years from now, my great-great-grandchildren's time, will it bear any resemblance to this world of mine? Um, and it, towards the end, you ask this wonderful question, I wonder just what kind of ancestor I will be at last. Um, that's a fantastic growing edge question. And it's one that 
without having those wonderful words for it, I've tried to ask a lot of a lot of elders that, that I'm connected with who have been trying to find their footing in our current political, cultural, racial, economic crisis. Um, I, I've asked them, what do you want your grandchildren to know about where you stood during this time? Yeah. What, how, what's your legacy? What legacy do you want to leave in terms of what you were bearing witness to at a time that's going to be written about over and over again in the history books. So your song had special resonance with me for that reason at age 82, for other obvious reasons. What kind of ancestor do I want to be at last? Love to hear you walk us around and, and into that force field as we close out with what's John McCutcheon's growing edge. I've I've been blessed in my whole life um, with elders who were generous and talented and patient with me, uh, and that included people who eldered me on how to play the banjo, or who uh, were involved in amazing historical events who shared those experiences with me, uh, who kicked me in the ass when I needed it. Uh, and, and all the ways that we elder one another. And many of those people are gone now. I, I hitched my wagon to the star of a lot of people who were old to begin with. Younger than I am now, ironically. <laughs> But they seemed very old to me at the time. And as I exchanged positions with them, uh, they're all gone now. And I remember the day that Pete Seeger died. And he had been preceded by a lot of my elders, whether it be Gene Ritchie or Utah Phillips or Odetta or many people who were my North Star. When Pete died, I realized, oh, that was kind of the last human membrane between me and the other side, I guess. And my wife said, well, you're, the, you're one of the elders now. Does, how do you feel about that? And I've been getting used to it and looking at the world around me, especially in the music world, where that's my bullpen, uh, and looking very compassionately and lovingly on the eager young people that I was 50 years ago and how, and, and acting that way as well, acting in a way that, that is, gives them dignity and me at the same time. But also, uh, as I said earlier, uh, my growing edge these days is doing things that scare me. Yeah. I'm writing a mass because that's what apparently composers do from Mozart to Bernstein, who was Jewish, wrote a mass. I know the form. I was in the seminary. I had a great Latin mumble. Um, uh, I, I'm writing a book, which really scares me. 
because I can't imagine working outside of the three and a half minute form. It's sort of like yeah. the opposite of when I was writing songs with, with authors and Barbara Kingsolver, our mutual friend, Carrie said to me, I usually have 10,000 words to get my ideas across. You want me to do it in three minutes? <laughs> and it was a, it was a window into the way in which we work with our words. You know, Carrie and I work with the, that distillation of language that is poetry and music. And now I'm having to learn how to luxuriate on the page. So I'm, eldering is something that I take very seriously and I, I, wanna, I wanna be a good ancestor. <laughs> and we become ancestors from the moment that child appears. It's about all the noises and creaks and things that we make as we get older and the crazy things we do <laughs> that are gonna be fodder for great stories for our children. I'm not being rude. I'm creating a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the idea of, of becoming the elder and taking that with, um, with seriousness, uh, with sincerity, uh, with, with humility, with a sense of humor. This is, you know, this is something I've also been learning from Parker. And uh, though at my age, uh, I love working with Parker because he calls me, hey, kids. (laughs) (laughs) I totally love that. Um, um, But, but, you know, not a lot of people call me, hey, kid, anymore. Um, But, you know, the, the idea of doing things that are still... I used to always say... If it's making me a little feel like it's risky, it's probably what I should be doing. It's probably where I should mm-hmm. be stepping into artistically because it feels a little risky. Um, and uh, kind of going back to you know what we've been doing during this pandemic, hasn't it been amazing to realize that spirit moves farther and wider and faster than we ever imagined? You know that that it's not it's not limited to um, being just in the same room. That it's not limited at all. Um, and in your song that we're going to be playing here as we end, um, I, I love that image. The ha- I saw the handprint on the cave wall. You know that 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 ancestor had this desire to create something. Here I am. I am here. I'm ex- I, I was here, and um, and and we we all desire to do that. I mean, we live in an age where someone will be able to listen to this podcast if there are people here a thousand years from now. It's it's a very different form of of immortality. Uh, and and most of these caves have been found completely by accident. Yeah. And what a wonder it could be. Um, yeah. And what what comes to me at this moment as we begin to bring this to a close with deep gratitude to you, John. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Um, what's coming to me right now is that nothing is better 
for an older person than looking back to the rising generation and asking, how can I help? And looking ahead to the future and asking, what can I do next? Uh, and if you add the element of risk into that, you have the recipe for a long and happy life as long as you're given the gift of life. Thank you for lifting that up for us in your own being and in your own work as well as your words today. Thank you. Well, Thanks, it, John. it has been it it's been an honor. I know people always say that, but for me this has really been an honor. I'm a I'm a, a huge admirer of both of yours and uh, you both sustain me in my work, so thank you for that. Thank you, sir. In all honesty, compels me to say that not everyone I talk to says it's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> One hundred years from now, my great-great-grandchildren's time, will it bear any resemblance to this world of mine, this place of boundless beauty? Wonders bright and bold I can't possibly imagine What the time ahead might hold Each day I am more of the past The future is not mine I know that what's been left me now Is for the next in line Have we packed well for the journey? done all that we could or in trying to be great again forgotten to be good i saw the handprint on the cave wall reaching from the past i wonder just what kind of ancestor i might be at last to learn more about john mccutcheon and his music uh, you can visit and this is for real folkmusic.com, probably the best um, URL out there. You can find out more about his performances and shows and ways to purchase his albums. Also information about the songwriting retreats and different kinds of retreats that he leads. Folkmusic.com. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com so you can join in the conversation too. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. One hundred years from now, my great-great-grandchildren's day, I hope they'll find the breadcrumbs I've left along the way, just over the horizon. Place I cannot go, this message in a bottle from a century ago.
It's not God, it's John McCutcheon. And this is The Growing Edge. I love the idea of a cold open with him going, This is God. <laughs> <laughs>